Today in Washington, D.C., it is 63 degrees, partly cloudy. Rain is likely after 3 p.m. and forecast to continue overnight. Tomorrow, temperatures are forecast to stay in the mid-60s. From WPFW News in Washington, I'm Sue Goodwin. This Wednesday, February 28th, WPFW celebrates 47 years of speaking truth to power, powered by the people. In celebration and commemoration of those whose shoulders this station stands on, we present Freedom Highway, a salute to SNCC, Dory Ladner, and 47 years of Jazz and Justice Radio. From 5 a.m. until midnight, we will illuminate and interrogate the work and legacy of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the pivotal role many SNCC members played in the creation of WPFW. We will also be honoring one of SNCC's beloved Daughters of the Movement, Dory Ladner. That's Freedom Highway, a salute to SNCC, Dory Ladner, and 47 years of Jazz and Justice Radio. This Wednesday, February 28th, 5 a.m. until midnight. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. Celebrating 20 years, the New African Film Festival presented by AFI and Africa World Now Project brings the vibrancy of African filmmaking from all corners of the continent and across the diaspora to the DMV at the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center in downtown Silver Spring from March 15th to the 28th. The festival features 26 films from 16 countries, including three years premieres and discussions with filmmakers. Explore the diversity of new filmmaking from Africa at the 2024 New African Film Festival. Tickets and full schedule at AFI.com forward slash silver. That's AFI.com forward slash silver. Or call 301-495-6700. 301-495-6700. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. Right. They got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, hello and welcome to Empower DC's Taking Action. My name is Corey Shaw Jr. I am the director of the DC Legacy Project at Empower DC and your host for the next hour. Thank you so much to our listeners in DC, Maryland, and Virginia, and to the Nate and the Nation uh, for tuning in. Uh, as a reminder, I'm joining you all to share a bit of history uh, and how you can plug into and learn from the DC history scene. In that spirit, today I have the honor of sharing with you an opportunity to engage with the wealth of knowledge that is shared every year at the DC History Center's conference. Uh, Laura Haggard is the Executive Director of the DC History Center. Uh, she, she joined the organization in April of 2020 in the early days of the pandemic. Uh, this is actually her second uh, assignment at the organization since she first served as the Public Relations and Marketing Director uh, during September 11, 2001. Uh, with her today is Mariana Barros-Titus, the Community Engagement Manager at the Center. Uh, thank you both for, for joining me today. We're thank so you sorry to be here. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Well, before we get to the conference, uh, I know that I know, uh, but can you share a bit of the history uh, of the D.C. History Center? The D.C. History Center is the longest lasting organization most people have never heard of. Uh, we're actually one of the oldest civic organizations in the city. Uh, and we were founded in 1894. Um, mm. but we've always been a pretty small organization. Um, and um, and we're, you know, we're excited about having more visibility in the community. But where we started uh, was really as a, a small uh, private membership club. Uh, and we were uh, started by a group of white men uh, in positions of authority and a handful of women. And for a really long time, we uh, really operated as a membership club. Um, in, and that started to shift in the 1970s, um, and then in 1990s, a big shift. Um, and then here we are today as the DC History Center. We're located in the Carnegie Library on Mount Vernon Square, uh, and we're squarely committed to serving a, a diverse community as a diverse community of people. Wonderful. I, I mean, I think you've sort of touched on it. 
what is the DC History Center? Why, why would I yeah. want to go to the DC Yeah, Center? what, so, all right, so let's start at the beginning. What's our mission? <laughs> we, uh, so we're, we uh, deepen understanding of our city's past to connect, empower, and inspire. So we're all about local DC. Um, so if you think about sort of our, our neighborhoods, our communities, our built environment, transportation, planning, architecture, but also families, social life, institutions of faith, businesses, those are really the topics that we focus on. Um, for folks who are interested in the White House and the Capitol, there's a couple other organizations and they, they do great work. But if it's about D.C., the city, that's us, the D.C. History Center. Wonderful. What, what resources do you all have? Can I come to the library yes, and, and learn things? Mariana, you want to take that one? Yeah, I'm happy to do so. Um, so in the spirit really of being a center for DC history, we have several ways in which we uh, give access to the local narratives and community histories. One of those being our Kippinger Research Library. Um, we're open on Tuesdays and Thursdays uh, for appointments. And it's a great way of, if you are interested in looking at building history, for example, that's something that a lot of folks come to us about. You wanna learn about, either the school building that you went to or the home that you're built that you're living in or the apartment building um we have some resources related to that uh connected to what laura was saying earlier too i think one of the things that um is exciting about the resources that we have at the dc history center is that they're focused on highlighting the rich and diverse fabric of our city like the cultural fabric and um to that point, uh, we have different programming uh, that we provide. So we have K through 12 education, um, which those programs are centered around uh, giving resources to teachers to teach DC history. So kind of reaching our K through 12 audience and younger audiences to understand the um, opportunities for exploration of narrative and historical context that we have in the city. But then we also have that for adults as well. Um, uh, a big part of that uh, kind of cornerstone uh, adult programs is our upcoming DC History Conference, which I know we're going to be talking about later. Uh, but uh, outside from the conference, we have regular events that we host at the Carnegie. We also have been exploring in the past couple of years hosting events outside of the Carnegie, which has been really exciting to bring DC History Center to different corners of the city. And then our last kind of main area is our collections. And so, as Laura said, we've been open since 1894 and have been collecting uh materials, objects, personal papers related to DC history. And so all of that can be accessed through the research library. I would Wonderful. also add to that um, our exhibits that are here at oh, the Carnegie yes. Library. And uh, so we've been here in the Carnegie Library since 1999 specifically, um, but we reopened with uh, Apple as our partner in the Carnegie in 2019. And we have several exhibits that are here on site that people are welcome to come check out. Um, and one of them is an exhibit called The Big Picture, uh, which features a really spectacular collection of panoramic photographs from 20th uh, century DC. Um, so we're sort of tucked away there on the second floor above the Apple store. Um, but so folks could, are, are, we're open to the public and free um, Thursday through Sunday. Fantastic. Now, I have to ask to make sure that the listeners at home know what we're talking about when we say the Carnegie Library. This is that beautiful marble building at the intersection of like K and New York Avenue, right? Down by the That's convention exactly center. Right. Yeah. And it's the it's a building that you've driven past a million times because you're either going down Massachusetts Avenue or K Street or New York Avenue. And you're like, what's the beautiful building over there? Um, and it served as the main public library until 1971. Um, it's a really beautiful white marble building and, you know, so many folks have memories or really wonderful memories of it as a public library. Um, but then many people haven't been inside in years or ever. Uh, and for those folks, it's time. You're going to be blown away by what this building is. Wonderful. I, I, I want to come back to a point you made, and it seems like a distinction almost, right? That the DC History Center is rooted in local communities. And you made the distinction in saying that if you want to learn about the federal government, <laughs> right, you can go elsewhere and, and check out some of the other institutions like the Library yeah. of Congress. Yeah. 
Um, why, why that distinction? Why is that important? You know, that's a really interesting point. I think um, there's always been a healthy tension between local Washington and federal Washington. And I think for many people outside of D.C., that's not a very clear distinction. As they kind of Washington is, you know, the federal swamp. Um, but for those of us who live here, um, we know that there's a difference between federal and national Washington and what happens in the White House and the Capitol and the, you know, the office buildings and what happens here in the local city. And so many people we know here in Washington that D.C. is a real city in its own right. Um, and but I think sometimes people who are a little further away from us don't don't realize that. Every time I hear the phrase, like, oh, Washington is so transient, people never stay, I sort of, I have to say, I bristle a little bit because I I know, Mariana knows that, and you know, Corey, um, that that Washingtonians are a very proud community and they're not transient yeah. at all. <laughs> <laughs> not at all, not at all. Um, I, I do want to sort of now shift gears and talk a bit about the conference. I'm wondering... I mean, there, there's a lot to cover here, and I think I want to start with the historical and come to understand uh, how we got to a place where we had the DC History Center Conference. So this is a really great time to be asking that question because we're um, hosting this year, so April 4th through 6th, the 50th annual DC History Conference. And for the vast majority of its history, really up until a few years ago, the DC History Conference was run by volunteers. And, and so it is a really significant accomplishment. Um, and after 50 years, this is a thriving, dynamic, exciting event. Uh, this is not your usual conference. You know, most conferences are professional in nature or academic in nature. This is a community conference. It's free, it's open to everybody. Uh, registration is free and easy, um, and it's really meant to be an opportunity for all of us who love D.C. history, and there are many of us here in Washington, uh, all of us to come together and share our work, share our passion, and share our research with one another. Um, but that anniversary is sort of a moment to think, well, you know, what was happening 50 years ago that led to this moment and to this particular conference? We speak on that a little bit. Like, we'll, yeah, we'll you want me to keep going? The, yeah. um, so I, uh, so 50 years ago was also the 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 Home Rule Act, you know, 1973, which led to the first election, the first elected mayor, the first elected council, um, and so it's the it's a moment that you know a moment of Chocolate City, uh, Washington, really having a moment uh, and coming into its own politically. Though I think probably at the time we thought we would get further in terms of political representation and statehood uh, than we have. Um, and it's it's a question that we're going to be looking at as part of this conference. And there are a couple panels that sort of ask the question, what happened 50 years ago that led to the creation of this conference? Um, and what are the how does the political align with the historic? Mm, absolutely. I, I'm wondering. Getting back to one, I guess, this notion of, right, this isn't your typical conference. Uh, I can recall several conferences I've, I've attended and I feel like I have to show up in a suit and a tie with business -uh. cards. <laughs> is this that kind of environment? <laughs> no, it's not formal at all. Hmm. Ryan, I see you shaking your head. Yeah. yeah, it's also exemplified in that. Um, so this is the, now the third year that the DC History Conference is free and open to, to anyone. Um, we do encourage registration because it helps us with planning the room layouts, that, that sort of stuff. Um, but we really welcome walk-ins as well. And uh, to your point, Corey, it is an environment that I so enjoy each year because you do have the researchers, the professional historians that are, um, you know, who, who are living this DC history in their professional lives kind of eating and breathing. But then you also have a strong showing of community members who are here as memory keepers, as uh, engaged and conscious residents who want to learn more about the historical context that they're navigating. And that's what makes it such a special conference because you see this meeting of kind of 
professional historians and the academic world meeting with everyday experiences and being in conversation with each other. And that's something that you don't always get at other conferences. And um, I think it's it's such a beautiful meeting and I always so enjoy it. Um, so, so yeah, you know, and for folks too, whether you are in, you know, pursuing history in your professional career, or again, just want to be a more informed resident, uh, feel free to come. There's also, we also welcome folks that want to attend a particular session. And I promise you that after attending one session, you will be intrigued <laughs> to learn more. So, so come for the one session and stay for the community building. I love, I love that, Mariana. And, it, and it's so it's so true. I think if you love DC, you're going to love this conference. Um, but we're also like the subject matter that we're talking about is not like equestrian statues or, you know, postmarks of the 19th century. Those are all, you know, interesting topics. We're really we're dealing with issues that are relevant to us right here, right now. Issues of immigration, GLBTQ rights, housing, advocacy, activism, uh, statehood representation. These are these are important from a historic standpoint. There's a lot to say, but these also matter to us right now. That's exactly what I was thinking is is what kind of community stories are coming out of the conference, right? I imagine there might be some more neighborhood specific stories, but I also imagine there might be some more like movement oriented stories. What do those look like? I'll tell you the two that jumped to my mind, but I'm curious to hear Mayana's too, is um, the one of the sessions that I'm the most excited about is the keynote, uh, which is the final program on Saturday uh, with Kyla Summers. And she's talking about the politicization politicization of crime in DC and the history of that. Um, and we're we're seeing the politicization of crime right now at the federal level and at the local level. It seems to be our number one uh, political topic right now. And so looking at that from a historical lens, I think will be really powerful. And Kyla is, is really an extraordinary historian. Um, on the like the neighborhood and grassroots level, I was really excited to see Marie Maxwell will be presenting and she's like she's my neighborhood's unofficial historian. So she has a day job. Um, I don't think it's as a historian, but she has a day job. And then her passion project on the side is um, has been documenting and mapping uh, Trucks and Circle, which is sort of a part of Shaw. And I can't wait to hear her presentation. And, uh, you know, just one of those community members who's like, this is something I really want to investigate. And I'm going to take my spare time to do it and then come to the conference and share. Yeah, those are uh, great examples. Um, they're also, you know, connected to um, not just the variety of topics that get covered, but we also have a variety of formats that we're covering um, DC history topics. For example, we have one creative expression, um, which I'll, I'll leave it there for the suspense uh, in terms of like the <laughs> actual modality of that creative expression. But we have a creative expression about um, Lee's Flower Shop, which if you know, you're familiar with it, it's a staple on the U Street corridor, um, a, a really a community backbone. Um, so that being an example, we also have um, a panel on Black freedom and struggles in Chevy Chase, D.C. This is a topic that's very close to me and Corey uh, and, and the work that we've been doing on Black Broad Branch in the Upper Northwest. Um, but there's going to be some descendants that are that are talking as part of a panel and um, discussing firsthand what it has been like for Black folks in D.C. to have their placemaking be interrupted generation after generation. Um, we also have a really exciting one about kind of schools and students where we're going to be talking about the history of open plan schools, um, a history of the Bell Vocational High School uh, in McKinley Tech, kind of these um, two important institutions in DC's education uh, sphere um, that have, you know, uh, made a huge difference and impact in people's lives. And so, uh, you know, I think all of these are indicative that what we're really covering here is the history of people and community formation in DC. Yeah, that's wonderful. I, I, I'm wondering, you know, 50 years of conferences. <laughs> um, 
what I think this is this is I think particularly special, right? Because this is mm -hmm. this is fifty years. Uh, what are you hoping is is the sort of takeaway that people get from this particular conference? To me, it is that history is relevant, and that history is useful to us now to understand where we've come from and to make our community better. Um, and by working together, we can achieve that together. Um, so it's very much about, um, you know, sort of our needs as a community at a, at a time that's complicated and difficult um, and where we continue to not be politically represented. Um, so it's a timely message is what I would say. Yeah, I think for me, uh, along those lines, it's important to think about, uh, and, you know, we've been talking about it this whole time that we've had 50 years now of self-rule, of home rule, and uh, a degree of self-determination in the district. And it's important to know where we want to go tomorrow. We have to look back at how we got here. And that is the biggest message for me, I think, is that not just that it's a history is relevant today and and it is but also that there are a bunch of undertold undiscovered unearthed histories even of the narratives that we have inherited and something that has been exciting at the conference over the last couple of years is that we've seen a rise in um you know different community members you know an example that laura was giving earlier of folks who are interested in learning and investigating the context of their neighborhoods of their communities and then coming and sharing about that and um so that's you know a, a big message for me is that there are a lot of stories and nuances and dynamics that we have not uh, centered in the past. And we have an opportunity to do that uh, both here at the conference, but also hopefully inspired by what you see at the conference, you start to investigate your own surroundings. I think that brings me to where I want to go next, which is, you know, let, let's say Corey attends the DC History Center Conference, which I'm planning to do. You better. <laughs> um, but let's let's say I, I attend and I I, I go to this session uh, covering uh, Black Land Loss in Chevy Chase, DC, right? And I decide that I want to look at my own neighborhood. You know, what what should I start considering early on? You know, a year out, I, I'm assuming for the next uh, conference. Uh, what are the things that I should probably start doing if I want to potentially get on this on the program next year? Oh wow, we'd love to have you, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> no promises think... there. I will be present. <laughs> you know, I, that's a really great question, and I think it starts with a question. You know, it starts with, well, why is this this way? And this, you know, this doesn't seem right to me for whatever reason, either because it's unjust or it's peculiar or strange. Um, and then once you've identified your what becomes your research question, the resources that are available in this community are extraordinary. Um, and you can use resources like the Kiplinger Research Library, which is the research library that we have here on site um, at the Carnegie Library as a point of departure. Um, and one of the things that I, I think is so wonderful about our, our library team here is that we're very familiar uh, with, the with the repository archival um, and the sort of and also the online resources that are available so that we can start to point you in a direction and say all right if that's the question you want to answer here's here's what we have at the dc history center here are the collections here are the the books that you can refer to uh, but here's some other directions that you can go in um and then you know <laughs> we'll find you at the bottom of your rabbit hole and um and and, and hopefully come back with some answers to that question wonderful and so i've gone through this process i've gotten yep. my research together uh, do I need to write a proposal? How, how do I get to the place where I can start to solicit uh, that sort of support? Yeah, we do put out we put out a call for proposals typically uh, each fall. And so this year, I believe it went out in September, closed in, in late November. Um, 
And so that's, and part of the proposal process actually I think is uh, different than a lot of other conferences in that we're not asking for like a full white paper to be submitted. And in fact, we just require an abstract that you name the panelists that you're proposing or, or um, and the topics that you wanna discuss. And then if you don't have a full panel that you're proposing, we're also happy to put, um, to, to place panels together. And, and so uh, a big majority of the panels that we're gonna be seeing at this upcoming conference in April have actually been put together by the conference committee um, because they either align in topic or maybe they offer two sides of a particular topic. Um, and so, so yeah, that's, you know, it's not a complicated process, um, but there is some work that the conference committee does to make sure that there is historical accuracy, you know, like those things are also important. Um, we want to make it a welcoming and inviting space and remove some of the hurdles while still maintaining the integrity of historical accuracy. And um, as Jane Levy says, good history. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I, I'm wondering, because I want to come back a little bit to programming. One of the things I think I wish I knew when I was you know, coming up and I was in high school was, was this conference, right? Like, I, I think this would have been really, really cool. Um, I guess for the parents and maybe for some of the teenagers that are listening, what, what, what kinds of things are available to them that you think might be particularly interesting this year? So one of the, the just changes that we made to the conference was very deliberately open it up to teachers and students. Um, we felt that that was an, an important dimension to bring to the conference. Um, and so for the last few years, we've been building relationships with teachers um, uh, and encourage them to present them themselves or their work uh, on their students. Um, and we had a, a wonderful session last year uh, where Cosby Hunt, who's sort of known as the number one go-to history teacher in DC, um, brought his, his students um, to share uh, their research on the, the Great Migration. Uh, and the students had interviewed a group of, of older Washingtonians uh, whose family came here during the Great Migration. Um, and we love that. We love seeing youth voices and just the just the the perspective that they bring to this work is is so um, so important and dynamic and um, you know that sort of fresh eyes <laughs> you know kids saying hey wait why is this this way. Um, so we um, so we're looking to grow in that particular area. Um, one part that we do was part of the conference is our poster sessions. And so these are folks who are presenting uh, projects in the form of a poster, and that would work really well for um, a student. Um, so that's that we've already closed that for this year, of course. But if someone's interested in that, that's an option for next year. Um, but students and teachers can present, uh, can introduce a topic for the, the conference itself, and we welcome that. So then it sounds like maybe there's a few different ways to get involved as a matter of presenting. It sounds like there's poster sessions. I know there's tabling as well. Yeah. Uh, I know that there, I think in the past there have been some film screenings. Uh, I'm wondering if you can walk through the gambit, if you will, <laughs> of things that are, are possible at the DC History Conference. Um, it sure can, and it's and we we really are looking for different ways of kind of. Um, shaking things up, but also putting people in touch with one another and dialogue with one another. Because what's with the magic of the conference isn't just what happens in the auditorium or in the meeting room. It's in the conversations that happen in the hallways. And they, you know, oh my God, I haven't seen you in so many years. And I can't wait to talk to you about your presentation. I'm so interested in it. Um, so you'll have, uh, we're at the Martin Luther King Jr. Library in downtown, um, so it's very easily accessible. So we have sessions in the auditorium, which are, you know, sort of what you would think in terms of a formal presentation. In some of the smaller meeting rooms, say panel discussions, those are a little bit more intimate. Uh, the poster sessions I mentioned, um, and then the tabling opportunity is the History Network. Um, and that's actually in the grand lobby of MLK. Um, and we'll likely have over 50 different organizations um, and entities presenting their projects. That really is, to me, the highlight of the conference. I love every bit of it, um, but really seeing what people have been up to uh, is really um, just wonderful. And I, I feel like I've made, I make new friends every year. Um, 
We've um, we also have uh, I think one or two roundtables this year, which is kind of smaller group discussions, and um, and we have done documentary screenings, and I think there are a couple this year too. Um, so it's a it's a really it's a good range, and so if you prefer something more intimate or just want to sort of sit with the three hundred other people, that's there for you too. You, I, I wanted to back up say that. As um, a practitioner, as an enthusiast of DC history, I have to agree that the DC History Network is the most exciting part because you get to witness like what is happening in the history scene, what stories are being worked on at the moment. And there's a way in which in the poster session also highlights that, but there's something about the energy at the History Network that's just really exciting. And so for folks that are interested to learn about the cultural heritage seen in DC, um, that's a great place. Like whether or not you're a practitioner, it's it's a great moment to connect with folks who are in, in, in the arena, if you will. I also wanted to mention that this year we're debuting a new kind of, um, I, I don't know, like special bit, which is we have an author's corner, um, which our librarian, Alex Aspiazu, she's leading. And we are going to be featuring you know, new recent books that cover DC history, and we're gonna have authors present there to talk about it. And that's happening during the same time as the poster session. Um, but again, it's like this opportunity for folks who are interested in learning more and uh, finding about uh, different methodologies that are um, employed, the research process, like where do I start? This is also a great way to connect with practitioners, both the DC History Network and the Poster Session and Authors Corner um, to talk about like, hey, I'm interested in X topic. How do I get started? And that could be a good entryway for folks as well. I think you both have touched on this here, which is, I think, Lauren, you said that it, it, putting people in conversation, I think, is what's yeah. so beautiful about the conference. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to me, that sort of connects back to this notion of, of being rooted in the community. Uh, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to the significance of, of democratizing the conference process mm -hmm. <laughs> in a way yeah. that like, I don't really see many people do. Well, that was very deliberate on our part. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, it's because of it, partly a few years ago, so before COVID, I attended the conference and um, someone stood up kind of after a session and said, where are the young people? And sort of looked around the room and I was like, that's a good point. <laughs> and so, you know, we were sort of as the conference, which had, you know, great, great strengths, was speaking to a relatively small group of people who had were very invested in sort of the scholarly aspect of the conference. And we as a team here at the DC History Conference, I mean, at the DC History Center, as we came to play a more important role in the conference, really decided we wanted to reinvent this conference and make it less scholarly, you know, less jargony, less theoretical, and much more about the community and for the community. And, um, and as a result of that, the conference has really grown in size and in impact exponentially. Um, it's really, um, it's, it's really, I think, fulfilled its promise as a, as a community focused conference. That said, we're not aware of any equivalent in another American city. Um, and I, you know, what we're doing, I think is very much about us and what our needs are as a city. Um, but if anyone who is listening is aware of a conference you know, a Chicago conference or New York conference that sort of does the same thing. We'd love to hear that because as far as we know, we're the only ones. Yeah, I will, like I said, I, I've been to conferences in Pittsburgh. I've been to conferences in Virginia and, and um, I always feel like I need to be in a suit. <laughs> <laughs> no suits Whereas, yeah, yeah, but I, but I feel like that's, that's exactly what it yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. No, and that's not what this is at all. Yeah, I feel like yeah. the, uh, <laughs> I think the DCSU Center for me is like it's it's got the Chili's rules, you know. Everybody just comes in and they're relaxed, and everybody is just sitting and and, and enjoying each other's company, which I think is fantastic. Well, yeah, we also it's have a party on Friday evening, which helps. <laughs> yes, it does. And um, to 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 this point too, it's really truly is uh, come as you are. And one thing that I wanted to talk about too um, is 
to your question about democratizing the conference and why that's important, I think part of that is also um, about democratizing the narrative. What are we highlighting when we talk about DC history? Is it only sort of the upper echelon narratives that we've inherited, you know, from generation to generation? Or can we say that actually what happens on the street corner, for example, in El Parque de las Plumas, um, in, um, in, or El Parque de las Palomas in Mount Pleasant, that that's important DC history, right? And so like, we're sort of also trying to reframe that everyday conversations, everyday um, experiences on the sidewalk, that those are historically important too. And indeed they are, because that's what makes DC in its cultural scene what it is. It's the types of connections and conversations that people are having on the street, the types of connections and conversations that are happening in the alumni associations at Calvin Coolidge, for example. Like it's it's those types of narratives that we think are important. And so when we can get away with um from only centering what's happening in sort of the ivory tower academic conversations, then we actually get a more complete history and a more complete sense of what DC history is. And all of us benefit from it. And academia actually benefits from that too, because there's the opportunity to connect with descendants, longtime residents, memory keepers, who are the embodiment of DC history, not just like the theoretical you know, folks or, or spaces that we're talking about. That was really beautifully said, Mariana. Absolutely. Yeah, it really was. I actually, I want to, I want to grab onto something there because I think you've given me half a revelation, and I need the other half. <laughs> <laughs> um, you you mentioned this this notion of democratizing the narrative, and it, it, that spirit, I think, is what carries into the conference, right? It is why I think the conference is so easy to attend. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak a little bit on? this this notion of democratizing the narrative and and how the conference through its programming looks to sort of tear apart the historical narrative a bit and reintroduce people to history in, in a in a more attainable way that, that looks at um for example descendants of george washington who lived in chevy chase and sort of charts them through right the history of washington dc right why is that important can take a first crack at it, but Laura, I'm also curious to hear what you say. I mean, I yeah. think it's important is because we haven't heard those stories. It's because we know George Washington. We don't know George Pointer and his descendants, right? We know George Washington or, you know, part of what um, has been, we've been talking about recently. Um, so as manager of community engagement at the DC History Center, I've also been the facilitator for our Latino and Latina Latinx advisory group. And one conversation that we were having just uh, last week was that we know the name Carlos Rosario, for example, we don't know Casilda Luna. And so that there, there's the reality that there are these undertold, underknown characters that are incredibly important to understanding the context of how the dynamics that we're navigating today in the district came to be, but we don't know their names. And so I, I think that that's why it's important is because we need to know everybody, um, not just uh, for like the sake of the spotlight, but actually because in knowing more stories, we actually get a more comprehensive sense of how our dy current dynamics came to be, is that it doesn't make sense, for example, kind of connected back to Chevy Chase, uh, like why is Chevy Chase a predominantly white, a predominantly affluent neighborhood today when the rest of the city has not been that way for decades? and when you put into conversations the dynamics of eminent domain, the descendants of Caroline Brenham and the descendants of George um, Pointer, you start to get a better understanding of why the city looks the way that it does today. Um, so like, that's why it's important is because it allows us to get a more comprehensive picture. Yeah, and I, I think there's, um, I think a desire on our part to resist simple narratives. Um, and it kind of the great men narrative is a simple narrative. You know, George Washington, you know, chose the location of Washington, D.C. Pierre L'Enfant designed it. And, you know, for some um, 
you know, those are really a dated set of narratives and they're, you know, they have their place and they kind of help frame. Um, but what we do at the DC History Center is about inviting complexity and nuance and looking at the full community of Washingtonians and understanding how we've all contributed to creating this community as it is today. Um, and um, and I, I think it's, um, this is the this is um, looking at history this way. I think also creates a real sense of delight, um, and that yes, we recognize systems of oppression. Yes, we recognize inequities, but we also identify uh, places of joy and resilience and agency and people who have fought back. Uh, and I. Um, I walk away from stories of DC history, like inspired in my personal life to be a citizen and an activist, but also with a great sense of discovery of like, oh my God, look at these amazing people who are doing these amazing things over the course of 200 years of DC history. I will say, you know, whenever I go to the DC History Center, whenever I go to the conference, I, I always do feel like doubly motivated when I leave yeah. <laughs> um, as, as an organizer, right? Like it, mm -hmm. it really is inspiring to hear stories about uh, people resisting displacement in Adams Morgan, for example. And, yeah. um, and, and I, and I think that coming across sectors, I think this is the, the sort of crux of what the history center does really, really well is tell a diverse set of narratives from a very diverse perspective. Yeah. Yeah of people and, and and then frames it as and this is dc <laughs> right i think that's the thing i've always appreciated about the history of the dc history center conference um i also um want to add corey that it i think it's also important for recognizing that this lore of dc being only a transient city is also incomplete and simply not true but that there are a you know a a big portion of the um residents are transient or new transplants to the city. And that, um, I guess, just encouraging those folks who are newcomers to get to know your city better and that the DC History Conference is a, is a way to do that. Um, but in general, it's, you know, becoming engaged in the historic civic associations that are in each of the neighborhoods in the city, for example, um, that there is a real responsibility for each of us to get to know and you know, investigate again, why, like, why the neighborhoods that we're walking into look the way that they do? Like, what are the dynamics that we're walking mm -hmm. into? And I think it makes you a better resident. It makes you a better worker, uh, especially if you're in a public facing position. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to plug that in there as well, that we, we have a responsibility actually yeah. to know what we're walking into. And so, um, and we have a lot of free resources, many at the DC History Center, <laughs> many at other organizations that allow people to explore those histories and be better informed. Well, Mariana is reminding me that one of the sessions of the conference is actually about advisory uh, ANCs, advisory neighborhood commissioners. Um, and ANCs were, came as a result of the Home Rule Act of 1973. So they too are having uh, their 50th anniversary moment. And, uh, you know, I'm always struck that, you know, folks who moved to DC are like, what was this the ANC thing? <laughs> and it's such a form that's peculiar, kind of specific to us. Um, and yet uh, ANCs are such a great way in which our kind of local, our neighborhoods, our residents, our citizens kind of express their needs and communicate with the political structure. Um, so I, that's actually one session I want to be sure to hit um, because of, you know, Mariana, exactly what you were saying. Shout out to the new Washingtonians in the room. Um, mm -hmm. ANC commissioners are DC's unique hyper-local uh, sort of layer of government. They're not quite legislative. They definitely are not at executive level, right? They're sort of you have the mayor, the city council, ANC commissioners. ANC commissioners represent about 2,000 people, which is like a few square blocks. It's super, super hyper-local. If you ever need speed bumps put on your road, uh, call your ANC commissioner. Uh, that said, um, I, I want to be mindful that we're sort of coming up on time. And, and so I want to ask a couple of questions, I guess, to close us out. One is um, how can people volunteer if they want to volunteer and help out with the conference? And then two, uh, where can they register to, to attend so that we know how you want to set up the rooms? 
Um, so in terms of registration, very easy. Uh, go to dchistory.org, um, and then there you'll see, uh, you'll, we'll redirect you to the conference website. Um, so I think that's the easiest way. But if you just Google DC History Conference, you'll, you'll also find it. Um, and then if you're interested in volunteering, um, just to write get to a conference at dchistory.org and express your interest, and then we'll direct folks um, accordingly. Wonderful. Wonderful. And we do need volunteers to, to run the rooms, and there are definitely multiple volunteer roles. And this whole thing has been volunteer-driven since the very beginning. Um, so if folks are interested in participating, we'd love to have them. Yeah. Awesome. Well, please come join us at the DC History Center Conference. Uh, we'll all be there. We're partying together. Um, is there anything that you all want to note about the conference before we close? Gosh, I can't think of anything. I think we covered it. I mean, the basics, April 4th through 6th, Martin Luther King Jr. Library, um, dchistory.org for more information. Uh, you know, um, see you there. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. This has been Taking Action. <laughs> awesome. awesome. Thank you so much, thank Corey. Thank you, Corey. really fun. Thanks for thank having you. us. All right. Bye. 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 Wednesday, February 28th, WPFW celebrates 47 years of speaking truth to power, powered by the people. In celebration and commemoration of those whose shoulders this station stands on, we present Freedom Highway, a salute to SNCC, Dory Ladner, and 47 years of Jazz and Justice Radio. From 5 a.m. until midnight, we will illuminate and interrogate the work and legacy of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the pivotal role many SNCC members played in the creation of WPFW. We will also be honoring one of SNCC's beloved Daughters of the Movement, Dory Ladner. That's Freedom Highway, a salute to SNCC, Dory Ladner, and 47 years of Jazz and Justice Radio. This Wednesday, February 28th, 5 a.m. until midnight. WPFW, Building a Better World, one broadcast at a time. Celebrating 20 years, the new African Film Festival presented by AFI and Africa World Now Project brings the vibrancy of African filmmaking from all corners of the continent and across the diaspora to the DMV at the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center in downtown Silver Spring from March 15th to the 28th. 
The festival features 26 films from 16 countries, including three years' premieres and discussions with filmmakers. Explore the diversity of new filmmaking from Africa at the 2024 New African Film Festival. Tickets and full schedule at afi.com forward slash silver. That's afi.com forward slash silver. Or call 301-495-6700. 301-495-6700. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. This Wednesday, February 28th, WPFW celebrates 47 years of speaking truth to power, powered by the people. In celebration and commemoration of those whose shoulders this station stands on, we present Freedom Highway, a salute to SNCC, Dory Ladner, and 47 years of Jazz and Justice Radio. From 5 a.m. until midnight, we will illuminate and interrogate the work and legacy of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, STIS Radio. This Wednesday, February 28th, 5 a.m. until midnight. WPFW, Building a Better World, one broadcast at a time.
listening to the Just Completed program. If you'd like to offer feedback on any of our programming, please email us at info at wpfw.org. Good afternoon. For WPFW Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Darnia Samuels. Here are some headlines for this hour. Ever since the threat of COVID-19 became clear, it's been known that the virus spreads through the air. To be specific, people who are infected with COVID can release particles and droplets of respiratory fluids that contain the virus into the air when they exhale, such as quiet breathing, speaking, singing, exercising, coughing, and sneezing. So what if there was a test that could quickly determine if COVID was in the air before you go into a restaurant, movie theater, or some other business? Well, a group of researchers at Virginia Tech University are working on just that. Currently, the only air sampling or testing process available involves using a noisy pump that's approximately the size of a microwave. Scientists can bring the produced sample to a laboratory and learn the results in a day or two. However, Lindsay Marr, professor of civil and environmental engineering at Virginia Tech and leader of the project, says they're working on something quicker. She says, and I quote, we're trying to make it possible that someone could walk into a space and within 15 minutes do something like a rapid test of the air to find out if there's virus in the air, end quote. The researchers envision a person being able to use a handheld device to test the air for the presence of COVID that will change colors if positive. Do you or does someone you know like shopping at Macy's? Well, here's a heads up. The company plans to close 150 stores that are classified as underperforming, 50 by the end of this year and the other 100 over the next few years. By the year 2026, there will be just 350 Macy's stores. Of course, store closings translate to loss of jobs. Last month, Macy's announced it was laying off about 3.5% of its workforce, which amounts to roughly 2,350 employees. This downsizing is all part of Macy's rebranding. Their goal is to have a new, smaller, yet more luxurious look in order to keep up with rapidly changing demands from shoppers. In recent years, Macy's and the entire department store sector have been pressured by the rise of Amazon, the growing strength of discount chains such as TJ Maxx, as well as online brands. To your local news, in New York City, Governor Kathy Hochul held a press conference this morning in Schenectady County to address the youth mental health crisis in the city. She mentioned that not only middle and high school students, but also elementary school students need help to cope with the mental health challenges they face. I've long believed that every ounce of energy we put into and the resource we put into helping young people deal with these challenges now, whether it's depression or sadness or body image challenges, whatever they're dealing with now, if we can solve it now and help them have the coping skills now, they'll lead a better life later, a healthier life. So that's why talking about our schools is so important to me. Governor Hochul went on to specify how this year's budget will make major investments in the city's youth. To the D.C. area, a bill is being decided on this week that could bring the Washington Commanders back to Washington, D.C. The team is contractually obligated to play at FedEx Field in Landover, Maryland through the year 2027. But the Commanders are under new ownership and considering where its next home stadium will be. The RFK Memorial Stadium Campus Revitalization Act would allow the land where RFK Stadium sits to be used for a new stadium, parks, commercial, or resident purposes. The House is set to take up this bill tomorrow to decide the fate of the old stadium, which could become the next home of the Washington Commanders. In today's weather, it's currently about 53 degrees in New York and 65 degrees in D.C. That's all for your headline news this hour. For WPFW Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Darnia Samuels. Please be safe and thank you for listening. (laughs) 